Well, thanks everyone for joining us for another edition of the Dale Lee Tapes brought to us by Brett Vaughn over at Born 100 Years Too Late. And Brett, what do we uh, what do we got to look forward to in this one? This is the third episode. Uh, you know, I don't I don't remember exactly what it's about, but it's the same thing. You know, Dale telling stories. You know, and it real interesting stuff. I gotta I gotta tell a story about. You know, it was it was a few years ago. I caused a little stink on on Facebook about the dog food, and uh, I didn't I didn't even know it would get that much attention. I just made a little post, kind of criticizing a big dog food dealer, and I didn't and and it got a lot of attention. I had some dog food companies talk to me then, and and uh, Value Pack sent me a bunch of uh, samples, dog food samples at that time, and a sack of dog food, and I fed it, and I really liked it, and I tried to you know, buy some, but they didn't have a distributor here in town. And so that kind of went by the wayside. And then since I started this, these daily CDs uh, the, with, through the podcast with, with you guys, uh, I called them up. I said, hey, did you guys ever get a distributor anywhere close by? And they said, yeah, we got one right in Las Cruces now. So I said, what? And I'm not good at this, you know, and I asked him, I said, what about, you know, I'm looking for kind of a sponsor or something to help me out because I, I bought these CDs and they said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll send you a sack of dog food every now and then. And, and uh, yeah, so there's that's handy. stepped up to the plate and, and kind of helping me out, you know, so that, that, that's good. Any, any money I can save helps with the content that I put out. For sure. It's, so that's that's a good deal, and of course, you know, W Supply helping me out by by spot or you know providing the platform for this stuff, sure. which is which is great, you know. Yeah, and they're but, getting a lot of views. It seems like people are really interested in these old daily tapes. You know, yeah, I would, I would think so. You know, it, it it's not every day you get to listen to a guy tell stories from what this <laughs> the 40s and 50s even. Yeah, exactly, and and the guy himself telling it you know and it sounds like you're just sitting around the campfire with him yeah no, and it's been great yeah and then i you know i got to thank my i've had a lot of people join my patreon which is which is super good you know i i appreciate that help so we're gonna we're gonna get out and i'm gonna do some more interviews and see some more guys and then and then maybe on my youtube channel we'll do some some live shows and i can get you jason on there oh so. that'd be fun <laughs> yeah so, now because anyway. you're coming at us live from the the world headquarters, right? The new, <laughs> the new global headquarters. I, I, I finally broke down and rented an office in town, so, so I could have a good internet service. The, the internet I had out at my place is, you know, I'm about it was about twenty miles out of town, and it was through a little dish, and it it was intermittent, you know, and it wasn't that good, and I never felt comfortable, you know, right, doing the live deals, and and now I've got good fast internet and. I'm in town. There's not as much distraction. So came up to right. current times. Brett's got real internet. Now. Yeah. I'm going to have to change it from born a hundred years late to something <laughs> born 10 years too late or something. <laughs> well, awesome. I hope everybody enjoys this new episode. There's lots more to come. These daily tapes are going to keep on shuffling through. So keep an eye out for our Wednesday launches. They're alternating every other week there. And 17, 17 more of them. Yeah. Yep, there's quite a few left, so hopefully everybody's enjoying them. Anything else, Brad, or should we get this show on the road? Nope, just think. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) All right, well, thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoy. Well, now, this is a tribute to Al Lynn, coming from Dale Lee. Now, I never personally knew Al Lynn. But I did people, knew people that knew him, and they said he was a good, reliable, honest, hard hunter. And he wrote for the Full Cry magazine for many years, and he wrote some good, interesting articles about hounds and the breeding of hounds and what he believed it took to produce a big game hound. And Al Lynn had some good big game dogs, and he done lots of hunting. And now, probably as you know and heard, he was on a hunt out there back way back in there by himself, just him and his hounds, and he disappeared, 
and he was never found. Now, of course, it's nobody doesn't know for sure what happened to him. But I think that he was got back in that rugged country and was either hurt bad and died or he had a heart attack or something and was back in such a place maybe just where he had to crawl because some of that country back there is the way that you had to get through it if you got through it and he was never found but i think al lynn was a good honest hard hunter and i think he was a truthful man well now myself i have spent many hours out in the high mountains and in the foothills and in the desert country by myself many hours have i spent in those kind of places and i think that my educated guess would be better than the average person on what happened to al lynn because i honestly think that he he was either hurt and died or he had a a heart attack and that would be my guess that that's what happened to him well now i'm going on memory on uh, this particular trip and the reason that i can kind of remember as well as i remember pilot was born in march of 26 and he was killed four days before he was four years old so that would be in the March of 30. And this is when this took place. Now, Fred Arsner was a government hunter in the state of Oregon. And uh, he had had a little hard luck and for the time he didn't feel good. So he got in contact with me and wanted me to come up there and help him for a while. And uh, it was kind of my slack season. and I, didn't have too much to do then and that's when we lived at paradise on in paradise is on the east turkey creek on the east side of the Cherokee mountains and the Cherokee mountains is a, the range down in southern arizona right next to the mexican border that i call my home range because i lived there from the time i was four and a half years old and left there when I was 29. And that's when I started, and I was a full-fledged hunter and well-known by the time I was 29 years old. And it made quite a few trips then, and it done some jaguar hunting, but most of my jaguar hunting was done after that. But anyway, well, now the, the, the day that I was going to leave and had my dogs all in the and I was a taking uh, three dogs with me, two little females and a young male to Oregon. And I had them in the crate and was down at, the, at Rodeo, which was the nearest railroad point from Paradise, which was 16 miles. And it was just across the line a couple of miles in the state of New Mexico. And I was down there with my dogs and all and had my ticket and ready to get on the train and here comes Clell. Now that the day before that, he and Lao Lee, a cousin of ours, was a lion hunting in the cherry cows there, and they came out of South Fork of Cave Creek after they had come um, They'd come out of South Fork of Cave Creek, which is a, a real bluffy, rugged country after a line. And they topped over this high ridge, and they would look right down over into New Mexico and on to Rodeo, which is out in the valley several miles. And all right, they had, they had left their horses way back in there and went afoot. And these, these dogs, these hounds had this line treed right on the edge of a bluff that is about 750 feet right straight off and there was a little old uh pinyon tree that was it was really dead sticking out of a crevice and sticking out over this bluff and when they came up 
all the dogs except Pilate and Dan. Now, Dan was a son of Pilate and out of a full litter mate to him. And uh, all of them, and Pilate was down in this crevice right close to the line that's out in this tree, and Dan was nowhere to be found. So they killed this line, and it fell off of this bluff. It's sticking out over it, and it went right off the bluff. And when they finally did get down and got got the rest of the dogs and had to go away around, and it took them a long time to work their way down in under that bluff to where the line was. And when they found the line there, why, Dan, this big, fine-looking, red-speckled dog that was just working good and being trained good, was laying there dead. He had just broke all to pieces. So all right then, they packed the line on down what is called Sulphur Canyon and come to a ranch down there, and they were afoot. And there was some the a ranch there, and the guy was gone, and a couple of horses there. Well, one of them Clay knew was a was a just about a half outlaw, and he knew that he'd really buck. And this Lowly was a pretty good cowboy, and it rode quite a few bucking horses, and he said, Clell, let's catch those animals and ride them down to the next place, which would be then where my sister lived and her husband, uh, Bill and, and Leela Click, my sister married a fellow by the name of Click, and they had a ranch there, and says, then we can catch a ride on in the rodeo, and uh, have to come back around and go up after those horses. So they came into rodeo there, and Ernest was with me to get me on the train just before I got on the train. And Clell says, Dale, go back with me and help me climb out that mountain and get those horses. Because he said, Oh, Lowe here is Gil Plum out, and he'll never get back there. And I've got to have help to get back in there to get them. And I told him, I said, Well, Clell, I've already got my ticket. And I've got my hounds in the crate, and I've already put them in the baggage car to go to Oregon. And I'm on my way. He said, well, you can, I'll bring you down. You can catch the train tomorrow. I said, send your dogs on, and we'll walk wire Fred Arsner to pick them up, that, that uh, you'll be a day behind them. Because I was going by train. So you didn't travel by plane then, nothing like you do today. So I said, all right. So we went back then and went back up there as close as we could and to where our horse tracks took out. So we trailed those horses back in there. And it took us all that day to get back to those horses and get them back and get them back to paradise. Well, then the next day, well, he took me down and I caught the train and went on to Oregon. And so I was hunted up there for, well, I think for four four or five months. I don't remember just how long. But anyway, well, one day I got an awful sad letter because here come this letter from Clell saying that over in another part of the South Fork of Cave Creek that he is after a line and that Pilot had went off of a bluff. And, and Pilot fell about 300 feet. And Dan, he fell about 750. And that was the death of, of uh, Pilot, which is the best town that the Lee brothers ever owned. And this Dan was a fine young hound, although he was out of a litter mate to Pilot. But those pups that was out of a litter mate to Pilot was the best hounds that Pilot ever threw. But I, I think of one reason that he never did throw any better pups than he did with the females that he had bred to because I never thought that they amounted to much and it is my belief that uh, a pup gets more from their mother and possibly from their grandparents than they do their father and mother and uh, so I but I do think that a hound gets more from the mother than they do from the father well, I think that when you're breeding dogs, that the ability and characteristics and personality and all that they'll get from 
60 to 75% more from the mother than they will the sire. And then the sire and his side of the family will produce the rest of it. Now, that's my honest opinion, and that's that's what I think. And I've bred dogs and raised dogs and trained them for many years. Well, Clell took me down to rodeo to catch the train the next day, and so I got on it and went on up to Oregon, and and when I landed up there, well, Fred Arsner met me, and he had already picked up my dogs the day before, because they had they was a day ahead of me. So then we went on to his home and uh, went to organizing some hunt. So on one particular hunt, we were camped way back in the mountains there. And I know what happened. Some they'd, they'd homesteaded a few acres back in there and kind of cleared out several years before that. And cleared some land and they'd raise a few cattle and farm around and most of them had really starved out and a bigger outfit had bought them out and just left those old cabins back there. Well, these old cabins were equipped and they'd have a cook stove, cooking utensils, bedsteads and old mattresses, but they wouldn't have any groceries. So we'd have to pack the groceries and our dog feed on our own backs, and there wouldn't be roads into there, and we'd have to pack them back on our back, maybe for in some of them places for several miles. So one day we were packing back in to one of these places and drove as far as we could, and we hadn't got there near early enough, and it was we was going back in there in the night. And we were going, really going along kind of a, a, a ditch bank that they'd been running water in, but there wasn't any water in it then. And we had two facts. Well, Fred Arsner was a little, a little, I was six feet one, and he was a little bit taller than I was, but he is real big. I mean, while well, I weighed 165 pounds, while well, he weighed 200, 210 to 20 pounds. And boy, I would really make him mad once in a while. I'd stop and I'd bray. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, if I'm going to pack like a burro, well, I'm going to bray like one. He didn't think that was a bit funny. But this particular night, well, he had about 80 pounds on his back and I had about 50. Well, we went for quite a ways, so then we traded packs, and I took the heavy pack, and he took the lighter one. Well, it was night, and our lights was a torch, a fine torch that had a lot of pitch in it, and he was carrying the torch, and we was going along, and here was an old sawed-off tree about a foot across that stuck up about, oh, eight, eight inches of above the, the ground and he had the torch and was in front of me and he just stepped over that tree. Well, I didn't see it and he didn't say, look out, there's that tree or anything. And I stumped my toe on that tree and down I went and I rolled off about 10 or 15 feet into a little canyon there with that big heavy pack on and, and we were just going under and over. Well, when I hit down there, well, I just eased myself out of that pack and finally got back up and, and got back around and run up towards him and hollered at him, and he stopped, and I said, Say, do we need that pack? Of course, I knew we did. And he said, Oh, I didn't have it. He said, Well, we sure do. What'd you do with it? I said, I rolled off into that canyon back there, and that pack and I went over and under and over until I hit the bottom, and I just slipped out of it and, and left it laying there. I said, now, if you want it, you can go back down there and get it. If you don't, well, I'm going to leave it. Well, he said, you know good and well we got to have it. I said, yeah, and you done real nice to me because you stepped over that tree 
and you didn't even, and you was carrying the light, and you didn't even see, tell me to look out, and for that tree there, and don't stump your toe on it, or anything, you just went on, and I just left that pack, so he went back, and I walked down there the edge to where I'd rolled off, and I said, well, there it is, down there in that canyon, well, he took off his 50-pound pack back up there when he turned back, and so when he got that heavy pack and we started out, I went and got the light one, and we made it on into that old cabin, and good golly, we didn't get back there till probably 10, 11 o'clock that night. <clears throat> but anyway, well, over there at a certain pathway we'd been in there before, we knew where there's a big line of making in there, and he was a, a doing lots of scratching in there. So we was going to get up early the next morning and go over there to where this line we knew had been passing through fairly often. Well, I've got up. Now, he was supposed to do the cooking, and I was going to do the dishwashing and take care of the dogs and pack the water and bring in the wood, and that's all he was going to do was do the cooking. And he wasn't too work riddle. He didn't care about working too much. So I got up early the next morning just as his breaking day, and I built a little... I built a fire in the cook stove, and I put on the water to get hot for the coffee pot and built a good fire, and we were short of water, so I grabbed the big bucket, and I had to kind of go down into a spring there. I must have had to carry that water for 150, 200 yards, and I got a big bucket of that water and come back and I'd already woke him before I left and told him to get up and get his breakfast started and when I come in why he had pulled the covers up over his head and was back asleep again so I just lightly took that water over and set it down up on a little bench where it was supposed to be and I eased over and got a cup and oh that is good water and good and cold so I just took a cup of that cold water and eased over towards that bed and I just grabbed the covers and jerked them back and I just throwed that cup of cold water I square in his face. Well now let me tell you that woke him up. He jumped up and covers just flew in every direction and he took after me. Well this was a little old one room cabin and a table right in the middle and I run around that table a couple of times but when I'd looked everything over and when I come back, I'd left the door open just a little bit so I wouldn't have to unlatch it or anything if I wanted to get out. And about the second time around that table, I'd just run and hit that door and out into the yard I went and it was kind of gravels and all in, in that yard. And when he hit there barefooted, well, he didn't have much show of catching me. So he turned around and went back in. So then I come back up to the door and I said, Stay, Ted. I said, Go ahead and get us some breakfast and get us some coffee. And when you get breakfast ready, well, I'll come in and eat. And oh, he is still mad. So he did, though. And anyway, I, when I come in, I kind of was careful that I'd keep the table between me and him. And so we sit down and ate. And he had got to gripe in then. He said, what do you want to have cold-nosed dogs for if you've got to get out and get after them this time of the morning? I said, Ted, that's not the idea. I said, do you want to have cold-nosed dogs for this line hunting? They call them cougars up there for this cougar hunting. But I said, if you're going to get after one that's traveled a long ways, the earlier you hit that track and get started, the better chance you've got to catch it. So <clears throat> we left pretty early then and uh, went over to this pathway of this line, and this big old line had been there that night and scratched. And boy, those dogs picked her right up. And away they went. Well, they got quite a ways ahead of us. Some of them got plumb away from us. 
but we had one old boo dog that belonged to Arsner that he had bought from us. And now that was uh, that was old Blue. He was that half brother to Pilot. He, he had jumped. He got crippled awful easy. He jumped out of a truck when uh, and Cale and I saw him do it, and he swinged one front leg. That meant that the muscles from that leg all shriveled up, and you could just feel the bone of his shoulder there. And uh, and that 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 hurt him a lot. Well, we finally was, he never did get out of our hearing, and we got to him, and he was getting awful tired. We would call streams every once in a while, and he could get a drink, and we'd get a drink. But then by the time we hit the next stream, why, well, he'd be awful hot. And a part of the time, I carried water along in my hat to give him. And it's a good thing we pampered him along. Well, about probably one o'clock, we found one of my little females, and uh, for some reason she got thrown out, out from the rest, from the other two. We only had four hounds, and the other the other hound was a a little red speckled female out of that famous famous Dub Evans dog that we had raised the litter of pups from, and the other one was blong a big male. Black and tan belonged to Fred Arsner that come out of that Dub Evans ranch in New Mexico, and there's a book on those dogs called The Slash Ranch Hound. And that is a good hound book, and it is honestly wrote, in, and there's not a falsehood in that book, because that Dub Evans was a good, honest, Christian man, and he did not tell anything that was a false, a falsehood, because he was known as to be one of his truthful men as you could talk to. Well, after we caught this little female, Lily, now that was one of the crosses out of Pilot and his full litter mate. After we caught up to her, well, she she helped old Blue straighten that track out a lot. And just about, it's getting late in the evening, just right, right around 5 o'clock, we finally found Rat and Screamer, that was the other two's names, and they had made a bad lose, and we overtook them. And that's where your experience paid off. Now, the, how they had made that lose that line had got ready to lay up, and he had just fooled all around there and went here and went there and looking for a place that he was going to lay up for the day. And that old blue dog is the one that straightened it out finally for him. And they didn't go but about 200 yards and they jumped him. And he didn't run far to the tree. Well, we went down there and we killed him. And we sat down there just quick as we could and took out our knives and we skinned that line just as fast as we could skin it. So all right then, we took the hide and we'd take turn about of carrying it and we started back trying to get back to camp. Well, we passed by then another old camp there that was about three or four miles from where we had camped, an old cabin. And a few days before that, we had been by this old cabin, and we'd found some of those bullion cubes in this old cabin. And we hadn't had anything to eat since that breakfast the morning, the morning before. So I always hungry, so we took a little time off there and built a fire and heated some water, and we drank a couple of cups of that bullion soup. And then we started back for our cabin that we was camped in. Well, we walked in then to that cabin where we were camped just as it is breaking day and the birds is singing good for day. Now that made just, what, 24 hours, wasn't it, since we left to go hunting. And we'd trail that line from about 6 in the morning to five that evening before they jumped him. 
and all right, we went in then, and we were so doggone tired, we couldn't hardly pull that last hill that our cabin set up on. <clears throat> and then we ate just a little bit. We didn't even cook anything. And we laid down and slept for three or four hours and then got up and cooked a big meal. And we could really eat then. And so while we was eating there, I said, well, now listen, Ted, that's one reason that you want to get out and hit a track as early as you can. Because if we'd have fooled around here for two or three hours, and then I went over there and hit that track, would have probably never uh, caught that line. So you see, it pays to get out early, although you have got good cold trailing dogs. Well, this is about another time we went out, was hunting up there in Oregon. This Fred Ardner and I went out there from one of those camps, was camped back in the mountains that I described before. And we hit this good running track of this uh, female line. And after about a couple of hours trailing her, well, we jumped her and retrieved her. Well, we was quite a ways from camp, and of course, we was always afoot up there. We was hunting afoot all the time. We never had any horses to ride. And uh, they claimed you couldn't rode that country, but I could have rode a lot of it. But there was some windfalls in there that it would cause you a lot of trouble. And anyway, well, we just sit down and we skinned that line, and our dogs were pretty meat-hungry. So we decided that we'd uh, give them some line meat, which if we was going to hunt anymore, well, we wouldn't have let them have a bit. But we'd give them a pretty good bait of line meat, and, and they ate a good bait of it. We had four hounds. So then we cut off the hind quarters of this line, and one of us would carry the hide, and the other one would carry the two hind quarters tied together over her shoulder. And so I was carrying the two quarters of this female line, and he was carrying the hide, and we started back. Well, we hadn't seen the tracks of the, of the one line, and we didn't know that there was another line there and this was a female and there was a big old male right there well we hadn't went any distance till the hounds picked up the tracks of this big old male and they just left there well the poor son of a guns after eating that beta of uh, hot line meat well now that really did make them sick they'd stop on that line trail and vomit and just vomit all over and uh, it wasn't very long till they treed this line. Well, I'd throw the, down the hind quarters of this female line, line that I was carrying and took after them, and I run off and left this Fred Arsner, which is bringing the, the hide along. <clears throat> and those dogs treed that big line in a what they call a madrone tree. And it just went up a ways, Oh, probably 15 feet, and then just grew out right straight to where this line went up there and was just laying down on that big tree up there on the body of it where it was a fairly flat place. And when I, I came in above him, and when I looked down there, well, these hounds was right in under him, and he wasn't over 15 feet up, and they was a jumping up and a barking and a barking and a jumping. And that big son of a gun didn't seem like that he was paying any attention to those dogs. He was just sitting up there, kind of licking his paws and like he's washing his face, getting ready to make a meal. <clears throat> and I kept looking at him, and as, as I walked down there then, well, he just looked at me like, by golly, there's my meal. And he crouched down. And I just kept a walking towards him, and now in a minute he kind of laid his ears back on his head and went to wringing his tail. And I believe that if I'd have walked on down there, that that line would have jumped out and had jumped on me. Well, I had no gun or anything to protect myself with, and I figured that line might could do me some real damage or possibly kill me before I could 
before those dogs could pull him off. So I just backed up on the hill quite a little ways, and I just sat there and watched those dogs dream. Now, this old blue dog that was crippled in the shoulder had to swing his shoulder. We had to be careful when we shot anything out of a tree and pulled him back because he had, wasn't fast enough to get out of the way and, and uh, something might fall on him and, and hurt him bad. So I just sat there, and after a while, here come old Ted, and he had the gun. Had a, I think we was using a thirty-two twenty or something like that. And uh, it was his gun. And he told me, he said, go down there and catch old Blue. And I said, well, now, listen, Ted, if you want old Blue caught, you go down there and catch him yourself. He said, well, says, what's wrong? I said, well, I never saw a lion act that way before. And I said, I believe that if I went on down there a while ago, I believe that big lion would have jumped on me. And uh, that's, a, that's a big lion. That's an extra big lion. And he could have hurt me. So he said, well, now listen, if that's the case, I said, you can go on down there. You've got a gun in your hand. He said, well, I'm not going to. He said, I'm going to kill that lion from right here. And old Blue would just have to watch out for himself. So he raised up and killed the lion. So then we had to skin him. And then he is carrying two lion hides. And I cut the hindquarters off of that big lion. And I tied them together and put them over my shoulder. And we went on back to, to our camp. And which was at least three miles. So we had to pack that stuff. And we got there, though, that we was a happy, we was happy hunters because we got what we Well, now, this hunt was before we ever went into the swamps of Nayarit. And it was made in the mountains of, of uh, Sonora and over on that uh, Yaki River. And they, this party was from New Orleans. <clears throat> and there was an older man then that was the oldest one of the bunch, and he was a man up in years. And his name was uh, Mr. Lester Freeman. And he was a fine old man and a fine sportsman and would really get out and do his best. If he had had hard luck, well, he would take it in stride. And then he had a son with him that was 25 years old. And after the first three or four days of hunting, well, he just sat in camp and belly ached. And uh, that's, that was what he was really good for. And he was Lester Jr. And then there was a fellow by the name of McCormick that was a broker. And they were from New Orleans. And we had hauled down to that little town of the Visaderas in Sonora, and then we'd got a pack outfit and packed over, and we could cross that Yaki River all right, so we crossed it and went out on the other side that we knew was the best Jaguar country. Now, this was in the latter part of November, and it should have been some rain in that country by the, before that. But it hadn't rained a bit, and what I mean, the trailing conditions were terrible. And there was lots of fine grass there with fine seeds, and the dogs were trying to cold trail, and they'd sniff them little old seeds up their nose, and uh, then their heads would swell up, and they would, they would bust and run pus, and always having a terrible time, and... This hunt was supposed to be a 14-day hunt, and let's see, we hunted 11 days and was a trailing either a lion or a jaguar every day. Well, the 11th day, we were on this, uh, uh, on a lion track, and it rained us both parties out. Now, we were hunting two different packs of dogs. Clell and Vincent was a hunting one pack. And I had the old man there that was a cooking for us, and he'd take off and help me with with uh, this McCormick a part of the time. 
and part of the time I'd handle this McCormick by myself. Well, then one afternoon it clouded up and it started raining, and it come a good rain, and it rained till just a little after dark and then quit. Well, boy, that really did tickle us because we knew that that was going to make all kinds of difference in what kind of luck we had. So we rolled out of there just as is rode out of camp, just as is cracking day, and. Uh, Carl said, well, I can tell you one thing. He said, I'm really confident that we're going to bring in something today. And that old boy said, laying in his tent in bed, and uh, his daddy was with Clay and Vincent and McCormick, was with John Bennell and I. John Bennell was our cook. And he said, oh, baloney. Says, I've been hearing that for 11 days. So we just rode on, and all right, that... That day then, we were over there a long ways from camp, and our dogs hit a track and went up in some bluffs and then went to treeing. And I got McCormick, and we slipped up there and looked over a rock, and there said a jaguar cub. And that, that little old thing wasn't over about four or five months old, and it was, was small, maybe not over about four months old. And he said, huh, says one of them little spotted cats. And I said, yes, it is. I said, that's a jaguar cub. He said, no, it's not. I said, well, I know good and well it is. I know what I'm looking at. And we weren't 30 feet from it looking over a rock, and it is up a small tree. The dogs could almost pull it out. He said, well, I know that's not a jaguar cub. And I said, well, I know it is. He said, I suppose you'd like to bet on that. I said, I sure would. And he said, uh, well, what do you want to bet? I said, well, I'll bet as much as you want to bet. Well, he said, let's bet $10. I said, all right, I'll bet you $10. So I said, let's tie that thing up. Let's don't kill it. Let's tie it up alive. So we had to cut up one of our light ropes. John Bennell had a light rope, and I had one. And we had to cut one of them up and ravel it out to have any ropes to do anything with. So we did, and we tied up the dogs, and uh, I fished a ro little ro a rope around his neck, and we jerked it out, and old John and I tied it right quick. Well, we had this jaguar cub tied up, and I told John, I said, well, John, you take this thing on back to camp, because we can't go on a hunting and have this thing, and, and I'll make a circle around here with McCormick and see if I can pick up the tracks of this old female jaguar, and I'll just... Handle McCormick myself, and you take this cub on back to camp. And he said, all right. So they pulled out, and we circled around there and didn't hit the tracks of this old jaguar female, but we hit the tracks of a, of a, oh, a mountain lion. But it wasn't a big one, and it wasn't little, but it was a, probably a hundred, a hundred and five, ten pound lion. And it was a pretty good track, and the way we went on it, and after about three or four hours, while well, we treated it. And we got it out, and I took it on my horse, and we started back to camp. And we were a long ways from camp. And we didn't ride back into that camp till about a couple of hours after dark. And when we rode into that camp, well, Clay and Benson and Mr. Mr. Freeman is back, and they had caught a big male lion that day. So that was a pretty good day after the storms broke and we got a break because we brought in one jaguar cub and, and two lines, one big one and one medium size. And I told Clell, I said, well, Clell, it's almost a cinch. If we'll keep going back over there, we'll get a run at that old female jaguar because this kitten was not, was, it's a cinch that it was with its mother. So, all right, well, we was going to go the next morning. And, of course, then this young Freeman, well, oh, boy, he is enthused, and he is sure going to go. And he hadn't went over three times during the whole hunt, but he is a-going the next morning. And we all just despised him because he was such a belly acre and such an arrogant son of a gun. So <clears throat> this McCormick was the all-in 
And he had hunted faithfully, and he went many miles, and he was really tired. And he was all in. He said, boys, he said, I'd love to go, but he says, I just can't go because I'm just give out. So he stayed in bed. And we all pulled out, and uh, John John Vennell didn't go with us that day. Oh, but Clell and Benson and I and uh, a couple of Mexicans and Mr. Freeman and his son, Lester Jr. And right close to where we had tied up this uh, Jaguar cub, there was a dickens of a cave there, and it kind of went down. And it was a big and had lots of little old side rooms in it. And I don't know, I never did go to the bottom of it. I don't know how how deep it was. But we got up there and got to where we had tied up the Jaguar cub and the dogs hadn't picked up a track. So the old man, Freeman, stayed outside and we went down to look in this cave and poke around in it. And we'd been down there just a little while and he waited too long because these hounds right down there pretty close picked up a track and just left there with it. And after a bit, he hollered down that cave, says, Say, says, your dog's on a track, and they're really running. I think you better come out and see what's happening. And, of course, we scrambled out of there just fast as we could, and we just heard one hound ball as it went out of hearing. He waited by far too long to ever say anything about it. Because up to then, they hadn't picked up a thing. Well, we left them. Mr. Freeman and Lester Jr. there with a, with a Mexican. And uh, Cleon Benson and I and one Mexican took after the dogs. And we didn't know for sure what direction that dog was. So we split up. And uh, Benson and I got over there and heard them. And they were bayed. So then... Vincent went back after Clell and all the party, and I went to the hounds. Well, I got to them, and they were bayed in a hole. And it didn't look like a very good place because I finally got the dogs out, and some of them had been right up to the Jaguar because they were scratched up. And I finally got them out of the hole and, uh, and tied them. And when they finally got there then, well, we looked it over, and you had to, you could get up and drop down through a hole that was just big enough that a man, a good-sized man, could just squeeze through. But when you went through, you'd hit down there about eight feet below, and when you hit, you'd be right there by that jaguar. And so then the old man says, I'm going to let Lester Jr. kill it. But before we left, we said, who's going to kill this jaguar if I catch it? And Mr. Freeman says, I am. We said, well, that's fine. And then uh, old Lester Jr. evidently had, had uh, got after him and begged him. So he finally said, well, I'm going to let Lester Jr. kill it. And, of course, that made us all mad. So then and another right up from there, there was another hole of going down that a jaguar or a dog could got in there. But there's a big rock coming down and kind of stuck out in there, and a good-sized man, which Lester Jr. was, you couldn't get through because it had, it had hit your shoulders and all, and you couldn't get through. So we let a dog in there, and, and uh, Clell seen the, the, the dog jumping, and the jaguar slapping at it, and we pulled it back out and tied it back up. So we decided then that we would try to smoke that thing out. So we got a lot of wood and leaves and all that and poked it down through that hole and got that smoke just to rolling. Well, we got up that one hole that we knew went in there and old Lester Jr. and Mr. Freeman and I sat down there and waited for quite a while and old Lester Jr. says, I don't believe there's a jaguar in that hole. And boy, that really did fly all over me, and I turned around and told him, I said, listen, I said, I'll bet you a thousand dollars that there's a jaguar in that hole, and I can prove it. He said, how can you prove it? I said, I'll go down through that hole and kill him. 
I said, you haven't got the gut, or you could go down through there. He said, well, I'm not going to drop off in there. I said, I will, and I'll kill him for you. And I said, I'll drop right down through that hole, and I'll have everything ready, and I'll have my gun, and when I hit the bottom, I'll be ready. Yeah, and you'll get eat up. I said, I'll take that chance. So we fooled around there, and he went away up there in this, in right at the foot of a bluff. And after a while, he was a fooling around up there, and he hollered. He said, hey, he said, here's a big cave going right down in there towards where you fellas claim that jaguar is. And so I run up there, and it evidently did go right down in there to where it was. And it could have come out up there, and us never knew it. But, of course, the bottom of that cave would just had fine dust, and if a jaguar would have walked through it, he'd have made tracks just like making them in little snow. And I run in there and looked all around and looked for tracks and all, and it hadn't come out. So I hollered down to Clell. I said, Clell, here's a hole that's going down in there to where that jaguar is. I said, uh, send up a flashlight. So he sent one of those Mexicans up there with a flashlight. So I said, now, Lester, you take this flashlight and go down in there and look real good, and you'll find that jaguar in there somewhere. And I said, I'll just wait out here till you get him killed. <laughs> and he had an old 3846 shooter, I think it was. And he said, now listen, he says, I'm a hunter. I'm a sportsman. I'm down here in your care, and you're supposed to look after me. And I said, how old are you? Well, I said, listen. I said, if you're, how old are you? And he said, 25. I said, uh, how old does a man have to get before he's, boy has to get before he's a man? I said, by gosh, when I was 25 years old, if I didn't fear I was a man, well, I thought I was a better man than I'd just about been in my life. Well, you're to look after me anyway. I said, all right. He said, you go down in that hole and look for that jaguar and then come back out and tell me where it is. I said, I don't want to kill the jaguar. You're the one that wants to kill it. So you go down there. No, sir, I'm not a going to go. Now, you're to take care of me, so you go. So, all right, I took this old flashlight in my left hand and this old, I think it is a 3846 shooter in the other one, and I just walked right down and it just kind of wound around, and I'd already, I knew it went right down through the Jaguar. So I thought I looked good as I went down and shined it all around. I didn't go down fast. I just eased down there. Well, now in a minute, I come to a little jump off. I imagine about three feet high. And so I just stepped off that and squatted down on my heels and was looking on down, and Clell was down at that one of those lower holes down there, and he saw my flashlight. And he said, I never said anything to him, but he said, hey, you look out. He said, you're right there at that thing, and I know that it's right there right close to you somewhere. Because he said, I saw a dog jump back when he was slapping at it, and it's right there, right? And uh, I just kind of whispered to him, well, I thought he could hear, and I said, well, I haven't seen anything, and I've looked real good. And I happened to turn around with that old flashlight and looked right to my right, and there that thing was on a, a ledge of rocks, a little ledge in that cave, uh, looking at me. And I could have leaned away over and I took that six-shooter and slapped it right in the face. And it's a wonder that that thing hadn't have jumped on me. And so I just kept that bright light right in his face. That is, the light is real bright. And just raised up. And I just then, when I got up on my feet, well, I just turned around and jumped up that little jump up. And out of there I went. And got up there, and Lester Jr. was standing there and said, Did you see it? I said, Yes, I did. I was up right in a few feet of it, where I could have leaned over there and hit it right in the face of this six shooter. So I said, Now, you go down 
and I'll tell you how to go. As you just follow that right straight down there, and it kind of curves a little bit down there. I said, now in a minute, you'll come to a little jump off. It must be about three feet high. And I said, just step off of there and look right to your right and right around a little point there, that jaguar will be, and I know that it'll be right there in the same place. Well, he said, now listen, says, you go with me. I said, I don't want to go with you. I said, I've already been down there, and I've already seen it. I've been right up at it, and you're going to kill it. No, you got to go with me. He said, no, I don't want to go with that six-shooter. I want a rifle. So I went out there and hollered down to Clell. I said, Clell, send that coon hunter's light up here to us, and also a rifle. So he did. And so that old boy then was going to put this this light, you could put it around your head, kind of on elastic, something so you could adjust it to your head. And then you could have both hands to work a rifle, and the batteries went in your pocket. So he is trying to put this light on his head, and his hand shook so he could no more put that light up there and adjust it than a man in the moon. And I said, say, what's the matter with you? He says, I'm over anxious. I said, well... You can call it that if you want to, but I said, I got another name for it, but you can call it over-anxious if that's what it is. So I said, here, give me that light. So I took it and adjusted it and fixed it on him and all that and turned it on, and it was working good. I got that light adjusted all right, and then we started. And I tried to send him by himself, but no, I had to go with him. And he wanted me to go in front of him, and I said, nothing doing. I said, now you're going to do the shooting, and I said, since I'm not going to go in front of you. And I said, when we start down in there, if we're going to talk, we whisper, because don't talk down there close to that thing, because it'll make it do something for a lot or two. No sense, but usually when they hear a human voice, they do something. So we eased on down there, and there was this little jump off. So I whispered to him, I said, step off in there and just look right to your right and it'll be a standing on a little ledge there. Well, it's kind of crouched. It's crouched down. It's not standing up. And I'll bet it's right in the same place that it was when I left it there. And the son of a gun was so scared he wouldn't step off of that place. And, oh, I was tempted. I wanted to just took <clears throat> See, it was going down pretty steep. And I wanted to just stick my foot up in the middle of his shoulders and just give him a big boost and just shove him right off of there. I sure wanted to. But I thought that thing might jump on him and hurt him bad or kill him. It could have killed him right quick. So I didn't. And uh, I couldn't make him step off of there. And he squatted down on his heels and put his right hand out, got a hold of the rock, and just eased around there and just looked right around that point. And he just come back and said, oh, that there it is. And I whispered, I said, I told you where it was. And so he said, well, I can't put my gun up to my right shoulder. I said, poker up to the left. It don't make any difference what shoulders. That, but I said, you just be sure you hit that thing. And he eased around there, and it would have been simple for him just to step off of that step off and just standing up. And he was, of course, squatted down kind of. And I was standing up. I said, I want to be up on my feet if I have to do anything. And so he eased around there and looked around and poked that gun up to his left shoulder. And was a shooting, I think, a thirty alt six, and stuck it around that little point. And I know that gun wasn't over four feet to five from that thing's head. And he pulled the trigger. And he come back around and says, I missed it. I said, Well, shoot him again. So he stuck his gun around there and fired again. And of course, I couldn't see the Jaguar. And 
chucked back around, and I said, well, don't shoot anymore because you've killed it. I can hear the blood running out of it on them rocks. So I said, get out of the way and let me get down there. So he moved over, and I jumped off of that little jump off and looked around there, and he'd hit it both times right square in the head. So we pulled it out and gutted it and put it on an animal and took it back to camp. And that was uh, that was the 14th day, and uh, that was the, the length of their hunt. And uh, so we left, and in the last two days then, that made two jaguars and two lions that would caught in the last two days when we got a little break in the weather.